In any case, what I want to end this series with is I want to talk about contributions, like the contributions of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and there's no, the contributions are innumerable. Um, I don't think you could exhaust them, but I'm going to focus on just a handful today. Um, there's things that, that it's contributed that are still going, that it's continuing to contribute. And I do want to talk about some of these things today. I'm going to identify probably what I think are maybe the three most important contributions that have come through it and are still coming through it. So that's what I'm going to end this series with. I think I should pray before we get to work here. Lord, we just pray that you open our hearts and minds. Um, I know this has been a lecture series, which is a little different. It's scriptural, but not entirely focused on scripture. And but Lord, I know there'll be scripture today, quite a bit of it. And Lord, I just pray that you use the scripture to transform us because that's what transforms us. Church history educates us. It doesn't transform us. It's your word that transforms us. And so we pray for that. But we also pray that we would learn more about this Protestant Reformation and the contributions that it has made in, in these areas, these specific areas today. And so I know I have a lot of material to cover, Lord. So I pray that keep my mind sharp, my lips moving, and uh, be glorified and honored in all that is said, because that's the intention. And Lord, I pray that as we near the end of this message, this lecture and series, Lord, that this, this final point, we just pray that you really drive that home, because there is a singular, most important, pinnacle-style point to this whole thing. We're not here just to learn about John Calvin or Martin Luther, or any of these guys, or any of this stuff, even these contributions are wonderful. But there is a singular point to all this, and I pray that that is clear at the end. Be glorified during this time. Guide my mind and my tongue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to be making three main points today, and I'm going to begin with my first one, number one. I'm talking about contributions. The first area of contribution that this Reformation has made is in the area of theological. Theological contributions. Okay, and I'll tell you, the theological contributions of the Protestant Reformation, in my mind, are at least seemingly innumerable, and they are invaluable. You cannot put a price tag on the theological contributions that have come through this movement. The confessions, the canons, the catechisms that have come out of this movement have aided Protestant churches and believers in general in the formulation of their faith for over five centuries now. Um, I remember when I was a standard issue Christian, if you want to call it that, with a basic general theology. It was pretty mainstream because I came up in a mainstream church. When I started looking at these theological contributions by these old dead guys, my entire faith and life was transformed, sanctified and transformed. I had no idea that there was a group of men and some women out there who had these big minds that were guided by the Spirit to write out these statements and these canons and these confessions and these catechisms. There is uh, just a, a wealth of theological information out there. And, and I think as a standard issue Christian years and years ago, I just did not know this. And I think that's the case today. And that's why we pause in October to do this. But these theological contributions are just unbelievable. And what I want to do is I want to identify and, and quote sections from some of these incredible theological works in terms of like confessions, canons, and catechisms. I want to just quote some material from some of the main ones just to be a blessing to you and to, to show you what kind of contributions have been made. And I actually, because of the way my mind works, I chose sections from this material that spell out Protestant soteriology, the Protestant Reformed view of salvation, a.k.a. the doctrines of grace, a.k.a. the five points of Calvinism. So I was kind of strategic in how I did this. Firstly, I'd like to mention the Genevan Confession. Have you ever heard of this? The Genevan Confession. In 1536, the city council of Geneva voted to abolish the Roman Catholic Mass. They would not permit any churches to do Roman Catholic Mass in Geneva any longer, 1536. Got rid of it. 
Didn't think that it honored the Lord. Didn't think it was scriptural. We got to get rid of this thing. And they literally banned it. And uh, they did that so that they could implement worship according to the word of God. And to do this, they needed a new administration, a new liturgy, a new confession of the faith, because this is not something they had or really anyone had at this time. And in response to this, John Calvin or William Farrell, or maybe both together, they produced the Genevan Confession. It has 21 articles that lay out basic Christian doctrine, basic Protestant doctrine. In 1537, it was presented to that city council and adopted as the new standard was also endorsed by the city council of Bern, Switzerland, as agreeable to the word of God. Now listen to this. Article 4, it spells out the T in tulip, total depravity. Listen to this. This stuff is just amazing. We acknowledge man by nature to be blind, darkened in understanding, and full of corruption and perversity of heart, so that of himself he has no power to be able to comprehend the true knowledge of God as is proper, nor to apply himself to good works. But on the contrary, if he is left by God to what he is by nature, he is only able to live in ignorance and to be abandoned to all iniquity. Hence, he has need to be illumined by God so that he can come to the right knowledge of his salvation and thus be redirected in his affections and reformed to the obedience of the righteousness of God. This is an amazing statement, 1536, 1537, from the Genevan Confession. And of course, it is backed with a multitude of scripture. I'm not going to be able to cite all the scriptures that are tied to these. I'm going to give you these ones real quick. All of them should be in your bulletin. Jeremiah 17, 9, Psalm 18, 28, John 9, 39, and 15, and verse 5, Romans 8, 16 to 17, and Romans 14, 23, 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10. The list could go on and on and on. These are all the scriptures that represent that article. The article is constructed off of those verses. And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about the Protestant reformers, especially Calvin. Scripture was never left out of any of these doctrinal statements. It always had a train of Scripture following them. So that's just a little section out of the Genevan Confession, which is probably one of the oldest confessions. I didn't actually research that. It might have been one of the first ones. It probably was the first one. As a side note, in 1560, John Calvin, John Knox, Miles Coverdale, John Fox, you know the Fox Book of Martyrs, and several other reformers produced what is known as the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible. It was the first English Bible translated from the original languages, not from the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. It was the first Bible written for lay Christians with contemporary verse divisions, with italics, and with commentary. This is amazing, this work that was happening in Geneva at the time. You've got this confession, you've got a Bible that was produced, produced obviously by God, but written down and organized by this handful of men. By the way, this is also the first Bible translation that was ever produced by a panel instead of an individual. So there's a lot of firsts here in some of the stuff that we're looking at. That's the Genevan. Secondly, the Belgic Confession written by Guido or Guido de Bray in 1561. He was a student of Calvin in Geneva. It has 37 articles that provide a clear outline of the Christian faith, the Protestant faith. Article 16 spells out the U in TULIP, unconditional election. Um, I included 36 scripture references for this statement that I'm about to read. They're in your bulletin. There's just too many. It's crazy. He says this, we believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of Adam, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. God is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those who, in the eternal and unchangeable divine counsel, have been elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. God is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall into which they plunged themselves. Unconditional election represented in this statement backed by thir uh, how many verses? Backed by 36 scriptural 
verses. And you can see it here. God elected because he's merciful and didn't consider any future works done by anyone, which is the Arminian position. Amazing statement. The Belgic is an amazing confession. Everyone in this room should read the Genevan and the Belgic. Another one here, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I think most of us are more familiar with that. Written much later, 1646 to 47, by the Westminster Assembly, a synod of English theologians, Scottish theologians, and laymen intended to, they were intending to bring the Church of England into greater conformity with the Church of Scotland, which is, where, that's really the birthplace of Presbyterianism. The assembly also produced not only the Westminster Shorter, but they produced what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then, of course, the Westminster Larger Catechism. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has 107 questions and answers and is intended for children. <laughs> Have you ever read that document? It was written for the instruction of kids. The average Christian would open this thing up and fumble all over the place. 40-year-old guy would not even know what he's reading today. This was written for children. Our generation is seemingly pathetic in comparison to what these old Puritans and first reformers did in terms of educating their children in the scripture. The Westminster Larger Catechism, it features almost 200, 196 questions and answers. It is intended for adults. Uh, question and answer number 59 spells out the L in tulip, limited atonement. The question that we see there is, listen to this, who are made to share redemption through Christ? Who is it for? Who did Christ die for? Redemption, here's the answer, redemption infallibly, re infallibly reaches and is effectively received by all those whom Christ purchased it. And they are in time by the Holy Spirit enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. John 6, 37 and 39. John 10, 15 and 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. And chapter 2, verse 8. Who did Christ die for? For those whom Christ purchased redemption. A specific, particular group of People, that's why the atonement is limited. It is particular and limited to that body of people, and we call them what the Bible calls them, the elect, the church, true Israel, go on and on and on. Now, we also see limited atonement in the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. This was written. We see it in chapter 8, paragraphs 5 and 8. The scripture references for paragraph 5 and paragraph 8 are in your bulletins. There's like 15 and then 27. Uh, paragraph 5, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he offered once to God by means of the eternal spirit, the Lord Jesus has made a full satisfaction to the justice of his Father. And he's procured not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given him. Limited atonement. Paragraph 8, 27 verses to go with this baby. To all those for whom Christ has purchased redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and communicates the same, making intercession for them and revealing to them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such a manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Let me boil it down for you. The atonement is limited. It is particular. It is aimed at those whom Christ died to purchase. This is, these are real confessions, real theological passages that are out there for us. How about the 1689? Dave seems to be really excited about that lately. I think my mom had a 1689 Ford Pinto. Um, it was a horrible vehicle. A 1689 London Baptist Confession, which honestly I have gotten to the point now after reading these confessions and studying them 
not as religiously as I should have, but I've read through them and I've been looking at them. I think the 1689 is probably the best one. I really do. And it was adapted or adopted from the Westminster, by the way, the shorter. So uh, it was just modified and a Baptist perspective was put on it in terms of baptism. Um, so the London Baptist, 1689, it's also called the Second London Baptist Confession. The first LBC was written in 1644, the second in 1689. It was written by particular Baptists to give a formal expression of their Christian faith from a Calvinistic Baptist perspective. It features 32 chapters. As I said, Pastor Dave is going to begin a Sunday school on the 1689, I think this coming weekend, so you want to get signed up for that. The particular Baptists supported believer's baptism, and they rejected Pado or infant baptism, which was practiced by Roman Catholics and Presbyterians. If the Presbyterians have a major issue, that's where it is. Other than that, they're really sound. And, and we actually see their expression of, or their, their theology of believer's baptism and the rejection of Pado baptism in chapter 29, paragraph 2 of the 1689. In chapter 20, paragraph 4, it spells out the I in tulip, irresistible grace. Listen to this. The gospel is the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and it is abundantly sufficient for that purpose. We don't need anything beyond the gospel here. We don't need anything beyond it. And he says, and they say, they wrote this, yet to be born again, brought to life or regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses almost uh, also must have an effectual irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in every part of their souls to produce in them a new spiritual life. Without this, no other means will bring about their conversion to God. Irresistible grace through the Holy Spirit must transform and draw that dead sinner, must raise them to life and draw them unto Christ is what they're saying here. The grace that God gives, the saving grace, we don't resist it. We give into it very quickly because we have a new heart. They back this amazing theological statement with Psalm 110 verse 3, John 6, 44. John 6 is amazing for this stuff. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and verse 6, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. The list could go on and on and on. And then in chapter 17, paragraph 1 of the 1689, it spells out the P, the final letter in the tulip, the perseverance of the saints. Listen to this. Be encouraged by this statement. Those God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from a state of grace. They can never, ever absolutely fall away and never come back. They will certainly persevere in grace to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God are what? Irrevocable. This is scripture. This, isn't the, this is not the writing of a man here or a panel. What do they cite for this amazing doctrine? Psalm 89, 31 to 32, Malachi 3, 6, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, Philippians 1, 6, 2 Tim 2, 19, 1 John 2, 19, first, uh, or actually, and uh, I don't think it's 1 John because it doesn't have 10 chapters. I left out whatever verse it is, but chapter 10, verses 28 to 29 of some text in the New Testament also, also supports this. I don't know why I did that. Probably because I was trying to copy and paste and that got messy. Now, he, he, here's the deal. I've just given you some information supporting the tulip from some of the main ones. But let me tell you something right now. The Protestant Reformation has made so many more theological contributions. We can never even capture it in a message or probably 10 messages. The Heidelberg Catechism, for instance, written by Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olavinius in 1563. It was written as a tool for teaching young people, a guide for preaching in the provincial churches, and a form of confessional unity among several Protestant factions in the Palatinate. 
Heidelberg is a wonderful confession. You've also got the 39 Articles of Religion written for the Church of England, that's Anglicanism, by two English reformers, Thomas Cranmer, you've heard of him, and maybe Joseph, you've heard of Joseph Ridley. It was completed and adopted by the Church of England in 1571. It was added at the same in the same year to the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, I don't think that many of us understand, even though we have a, a reformed background, maybe the majority of us, but the articles, the 39 articles is a reformed statement of faith. It may be Anglican, but it is rock solid, so don't be hesitant to read it. How about the Canons of Dort, one of my favorite things to come out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, written by the synod that convened at Dortrecht, Netherlands in 1618 and 1619. This international gathering addressed the remonstrants, students of Joker, uh, I should call him Joker Arminius, Jacob Arminius, who were trying to replace Protestant soteriology, the view of salvation, the doctrines of grace. They were trying to replace, take those out, uh, which are scriptural, and replace them with Roman Catholic soteriology, the doctrines of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, which came to be known as the doctrines of Arminianism. The Canons of Dort consisted of five main heads of doctrine, 59 articles, 34 rejections, and a conclusion. It is an exhaustive doctrine. It is amazing. By the time you're done reading through all of those articles and arguments and everything else, you will say God is sovereign over the salvation of men. I have no doubt about it. And all the scripture that they use to support that. Have you ever heard of the Ordo Salutis? Another amazing thing to come out of the Reformation. The Ordo Salutis, that's a Latin phrase that means order of salvation. It is part of soteriology, which is the science of salvation. This term was actually first used, it's believed that it was first used by Lutheran theologians in the mid-1720s. What is the order, oh, the Ordo Salutis? What is the order of salvation? When we think of order of salvation, we're talking about where it begins and where salvation ends and everything in between. That's what ordo salutis means. So according to scripture, salvation begins with the foreknowledge and predestination of God. And it's not that God knew who would repent and believe in him because our God doesn't learn anything. It's whom God foreknew and foreloved and forechose and forepredestined, Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he predestined, right? And then the next step in, in the link or chain is election. God electing these people. He knows them. He predestinates. And election is really the same thing as predestination. But the next step or the next chain is election. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. And then after that, you have the effectual calling. This happens when this person way later, because these other two things happen, three things happen in eternity past. Oh, the effectual calling is in time and space. It's when this spiritually dead sinner hears the gospel and the Holy Spirit regenerates them and effectually calls them unto Jesus Christ. That's really the first thing for us to happen, although God had something first for us in eternity past. Romans 10, 14 to 15. And then you've got, at the same time, the effectual calling is being made by the Spirit. You have regeneration. That's when somebody is literally born again. They are born again before they believe because they are spiritually dead and they must be brought to spiritual life and be given the gift of faith to believe. So regeneration predates or it comes before faith. John 3, uh, 3 to 8, Jesus talks about being born again and how it's a work of the Spirit. Nobody can predict that because he moves like the wind. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. And then now you have in the chain link, in the, in, the, in the link, you have faith. Once a person's regenerated, then they believe, and they believe without resistance. They come right to Christ, trusting in him. Philippians 1, 29, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. What is faith in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? It is a grace gift. You don't have it unless it's given to you. Nobody's born with faith. And then immediately following faith or at the same time of faith in this link, you've got repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25, which says God grants it. 
Nobody repents on their own. It's got to be granted, and then they, they do it with this new nature. And once a person believes and repents, they are justified. So justification is the next link. Romans 5, 9, Galatians 2, 16. And then once a person believes and is justified, they are adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 1, 5, Romans 8, 15, Galatians 4, 5. And then from there on out, they're sanctified or conformed to the image of Christ, right? That's a daily, moment-by-moment process, Romans 8.29, 2 Tim 2.21. And you also have in this wonderful theology, which is biblical, this ordo salutis, you have perseverance, right? This person who has had all these things happen to them is being sanctified, will persevere and make it to the end. Why? Because Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith, not because we are the perfectors of our faith. So you have perseverance, John 10, 27 to 30, Philippians 1.6. And then you have my favorite one, glorification, right? And guess what, folks? Glorification doesn't happen when you pass away and go be with Jesus. It happens at the resurrection because that's when your glorification is complete and your salvation is complete. People are saved the moment they are regenerated and believe in Christ, but salvation is a process. We are not just saved, we are being saved. And the final thrust of our salvation is to get a new body that is fashioned and, and created for eternal worship in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, okay? So you have glorification, Romans 8.18. You have uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17. This is the ordo salutis. Now, the Arminians have their version of it, and there's about three or four versions of it, but um, this is the best one. Uh, then also you have the five solas, which we covered on week one. Salvation is by grace alone, soli, sola gratia. You have through faith alone, sola fide. In Christ alone, solus Christus. According to scripture alone, sola scriptura. For whom and for what? The glory of God alone, soli Deo Gloria, this is supported by a multitude of verses, but I've just got Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which actually has all the solas in them, and then 2 Timothy 3, 15 real quick. Point being, these are just a handful, just a few of the theological contributions to come through the Protestant Reformation. You know who was onto these things long before the Protestant Reformation? First of all, Paul was, and certainly Jesus was, but Augustine Augustine believed these truths long before we had a Protestant Reformation. What am I telling you? The Protestant Reformation was an explosion of these pre-existing truths. It didn't create them, but it did remind us of them and bring them out and bring them back to the attention of the church because they had been lost in Roman Catholicism. So this is just a handful of theological contributions. I say go do your research, read the articles and confessions that I just put before you, and you'll find about another hundred on top of that. Number two, ecclesiological contributions. Ecclesiological contributions. In Christian theology, ecclesiology is the study of the church, its relationship to Jesus, its polity. That's how it operates, worships on Sundays. Its discipline, its eschatology, what it, how it views the return of Christ, and of course, its view on leadership in the church. That's what ecclesiology means. That's what it is. And uh, it's amazing how transformed the ecclesiology of the church became during even the initial part of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, it just completely transformed the church and what it looked like, not aesthetically, but how it functioned and how it worshiped and how it handled the word of God. Everything through this Protestant Reformation just transformed everything and anything and everything about church at this time. And it's continued, I think, to reform the church in, in a great many ways. Um, it literally transformed the church's ecclesiology, especially its polity or way of operating one of the first things that you saw during this time was the reformers moved the communion table to the side. If you notice the old ancient churches, even if you notice today the Roman Catholic churches, the thing that takes center stage in all these Roman Catholic um, parishes and dioceses and churches, whatever you want to call it, I don't even know if I call them churches, clubs, whatever they are, is always the communion table. Because to the Roman Catholics, that is the, communion is the centerpiece of their worship gathering. The reformers said, well, the communion is important, 
but it's not as important as the preaching of God's word, or it is, but it is secondary to that in a sense. And that may sound a little weird, like we only have two sacraments, but understand what they meant. Communion is important, we get that, but the preaching of God's word is the main thing in a worship gathering. It is the main thing that should transpire. Now, the Catholic Church had this down for many centuries, but lost it. They took the pulpit out and moved it off to the side, and they started doing homilies, which is not really a sermon. It's like 15 minutes on how to have your best life now in Jesus. Literally, it's, they're useless. They're sermonettes, and sermonettes produce Christianettes. And, and so, so they, they move the pulpit away and put the altar up there, and then they do their thing, and they hold the bread up, and dominus ominous, they do all that stuff. The reformers come in and said, we love communion, but it's something that we will do secondary to the preaching of the word. They move the communion table out of the middle and put it off to the side, or sometimes they left them in the middle, but they built a huge pulpit right behind it, way up high in the air. Why did they build them up high? They wanted Martin Luther to look really good at 15 feet above the ground. No, because of what he's doing, because of the word of God. The word of God is the highest, most, most important thing that we do on Sundays. The reformers understood this. Roman Catholicism didn't even come close to getting this. Not only did they move the, move the communion tables down or to the side and put big pulpits in for the preaching of the word, they totally threw out the mass and replaced it with expository preaching. What a thought. We're going to have expository sermons. We're going to walk through books of the Bible together. John Calvin took nine years to preach through the first five books of the New Testament in a big pulpit above the table. I love it. In fact, he got fired and left Geneva and came back and picked right up where he left off. Uh, five years ago, I was at uh, Matthew 17, verse 1. Let's start at verse 2 of Matthew 17. He literally went right back to where he was. He didn't let anything enter. He, he didn't have a choice but for that expo exposition to get interrupted, but he came right back to it. This is how faithful this man was to the Word of God. So they got rid of the Mass. They, they removed that, got rid of it. They started doing expository preaching from these big, awesome pulpits that were up off the ground. I mean, they were way more cool than this one. You guys can get me one for Christmas. Um, I don't know. We don't have, I mean, I could be like this at the ceiling and preach, you know. Um, Oh, here's another thing that the reformers did immediately. They created hymnody. What is hymnody? The use of hymns. Now, the early church used hymns. Roman Catholicism uses a type of hymn, but hymnody didn't come into existence until the Protestant Reformation. And that's where you have multiple authors cranking out tons and tons and tons of biblical scriptural hymns. So they really created hymnody by writing a multitude of biblically-based hymns. Martin Luther was actually an amazing hymn writer. In the 1520s, he wrote, O Lord, look down from heaven, behold, from the depths of woe I cry to thee. A mighty fortress is our God. Lord, keep us steadfast in thy word. These are incredible hymns. In Roman Catholic institutions, buildings, whatever you want to call them. The only singing that was done in these places was done by choirs, and the only thing they sang were Gregorian chants. That's all they did. But in Protestant churches, you now had congregational singing. Do you know why we sing in churches? Because of our for Reformed forefathers. You did not have congregational singing. You did in the first century. Right? Paul admonishes Christians to sing spiritual songs and psalms and hymns to one another. You had it then, and it was essentially lost, probably for a thousand years. So, so now you, you have these Gregorian chants that are removed and replaced, and choirs. The first person to get rid of the choir was John Calvin, because, because he thought it was more of a performance, and the congregation wouldn't engage in singing. And by the way, Calvin was the very first pastor to implement congregational singing, but he would not allow instruments. He was one of those guys, like Church of Christ today, where they're like, oh, you have a guitar on stage, you guys are going to hell. They get weird about this stuff, but Calvin, no instruments, because he, he, his conviction was people are going to get hung up on, I don't know what they played back then, an ancient sack, yeah, whatever they played. They were, he was worried that people would get hung up on that and distracted. Didn't want choirs because then people would sit back and listen to them. 
Didn't want instrumentation because he thought people would sit back and listen to them. They wanted singing and they wanted to sing hymns. But you did not have this in Roman Catholicism. Calvin also actually wrote the very first Psalter in 1539. It's called the Genevan Psalter. What is a Psalter? It is the book of Psalms put to music. 150 hymns or psalms that are music. And it's not music for instrumentation because of how Calvin was, but you still need the bars and all that stuff to sing along because you have to sing as if your voice is the instrument. So he was the one that wrote the very first Psalter. The first Protestant hymnal was produced in Bohemia in 1532. So that comes, that's the very first hymnal and it comes slightly before Calvin's Psalter. You familiar with reformer Isaac Watts, 1674 to 1748? He had a pretty, well, I guess that's not a really long life. Back then it was. He wrote the first English hymn that was not based in the Old Testament. All of the hymns came out of the Psalms or something from the Old Testament. Isaac Watts wrote the first one that represented the New Testament. It is entitled, Behold the Glories of the Lamb. Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World in 1719, one of our fav favorite Christmas hymns. Over the course of his lifetime, he authored somewhere in the neighborhood of 750 hymns. This is why he's called the father of English hymnody. How about John Newton, 1725 to 1807? He was an Anglican cleric in England. He went from being a slave trader to a Protestant hymnist. He published three incredible hymns in 1779. Amazing grace. I ask the Lord that I might grow and glorious things of thee are spoken. Now, those aren't the only hymns he wrote in that year, but those are three that I know. And we all know Amazing Grace. Secular people will sing it. I've seen it. It's an interesting, weird thing. Uh, the reformers not only introduced new God-glorifying music into the worship services, they also threw out the false doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea of converting the bread and wine into the literal body of Christ. They got rid of that, and uh, most of them did. A few hang, uh, hung on to it, but most of the majority got rid of it, and they returned communion to its New Testament roots. They ditched the demonic Roman hierarchy and restored biblical church governance, especially among the Presbyterians. They were wonderful about this. The popes and priests were replaced with elders and deacons. What a thought, huh? Let's go back to what the Bible says about leadership. They revamped the church's missiology. In Roman Catholicism, the, the goal of missions was to make Roman Catholics. Still is today. That is the goal. That is the thrust. That is what they want to do. In the new Protestantism at this time, the missiology or mission of the church was to make disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel. <laughs> Sounds like what the first century and second century and third century church did, right? Okay, here's a challenge for you. I want you to name one Roman Catholic missions revival. Can you think of one? You can't because they don't exist. Why? Because Roman Catholicism for a, since the 1100s, in particular since the early 1600s, has been perpetuating a false gospel of dual justification. How are we justified according to Scripture? By faith alone. How are we justified in Roman Catholicism, which isn't Scripture? By faith plus works. They perpetuate this false gospel. Galatians 1 says anyone who does this is anathema, cursed. They do this. They were called out on it during the Reformation, especially by Luther. They didn't repent. They didn't recant. They maintained it. And because they preach a false gospel of dual justification, they cannot have true spirit-led revival. You cannot have true spirit-led revival when you preach heresy. It doesn't work. This is why the Mormons don't have true spirit-led revival. This is why the Jehovah Witnesses don't have it. A great many other cults don't have. You can get Roman Catholics, new ones, but they're not believers. How can somebody become a believer when becoming a believer is, is it comes through the hearing of the word because faith comes through the hearing of the word. If you're preaching something other than the word, which is dual justification, there's no real faith. 
and there's no conversion. The Spirit is not moving there. In fact, the Spirit is probably rebuking those who are presenting this stuff, and they just quench him and don't listen to him at all. The only, thing you can, the only thing Roman Catholics could gain during this time, and even today, in a sense, because they're leaving out the true gospel, the only thing they can do is acquire more Roman Catholics. They can get Roman Catholic proselytes that want to follow a massive, worthless religion. Faith comes by hearing the truth, not lies, Romans 10, 17. There's no such thing as a Roman Catholic missions revival or a true Revival, not in the biblical sense. But the reformers were now wielding a new gospel-centered missiology, and they went out and set the world ablaze for Christ. They traveled over land and sea, preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Calvin sent missionaries from Geneva into France and all the way to Brazil. They got on boats and went all the way to Brazil, usually with some kind of traders that were going over there to trade some kind of material. Their missionaries would jump, jump on board and make that long voyage and go over there and evangelize Brazilians, early Brazilians. Most of the young men sent to France by Calvin, they died as martyrs, but the church in Geneva just kept sending them. Because they just kept wanting to go. The gospel meant more to these young missionaries than their own lives. I wish that were true of today. It is in some circles. By 1555, Calvin and his Geneva supporters had planted five churches in France. Four years later, they had planted 100 churches in France. By 1562, Calvin's Geneva, with the help of some of the sister cities around there, had planted more than two thousand churches in France, 2,000 churches in France. And, you know, and, and, and what, do the, what do Calvinists get blamed for all the time? Well, you kill missions because you're fatalistic and you don't evangelize. You think God's just going to do things without any gospel or anything because he's chosen to do these things and it's all elected and predestined, so why bother? Let me tell you something right now. Calvinists have been the most successful, thanks to the Holy Spirit, missionaries in the history of the church. Hands down. One of the things that separates the Calvinistic missionary from the non-Calvinistic missionary is that the Calvinistic missionary knows that he cannot change people's hearts. And all he has to do is go out and be faithful to the word and pray and trust the spirit and God will work and God will save his people. Others are compelled by this idea that I must save people. And so then they soften the gospel. In fact, many times missionaries don't even preach the gospel anymore. They just go put up a mud hut for somebody and say, Jesus did that for you. If you believe in him, your cows won't die. Meanwhile, there's a bunch of dead cows in the pasture. This is the difference. Now, I just want to give you a short list of notable reformed Protestant missionaries. Maybe you'll know some of these, some of these people. How about John Eliot, 1604 to 1690? An English Puritan missionary sent to the American Indians in 1631. He is the first missionary to minister to this people group, to the American Native Americans, to the Indians. He is the very first one to come here and do that. In 1660, he completed the enormous task of translating the Bible into Algonquin Indian language, into the Algonquin Indian language, producing more than 1,000 copies. That's what this guy did. Well, they don't, they don't care about the lost because they're Calvinistic. Okay. How about William Tennant, 1673 to 1746? He was a, a Scottish-born American Presbyterian minister. He founded the Log College, which became Princeton University. This college originally trained Presbyterian pastors and produced many of the revivalist preachers of the First Great Awakening. And I'm talking about the good ones. William Tennant, he was a missionary and he was the first one to start the school to train more missionaries to America. George Whitfield, one of my personal favorites, 1714 to 1770. This guy was an absolute stud. The English evangelist that sparked the first great awakening. He journeyed across the Atlantic Ocean 13 times and preached over 18,000 sermons. 18,000. 
Samuel Davies, 1723 to 1761, a Presbyterian minister and evangelist, born in Newcastle, Delaware. Davies was one of the first non-Anglican preachers in Virginia and one of the earliest missionaries to slaves in the 13 colonies. This guy's ministry and gospel message was directed primarily at slaves. He was a strong advocate for religious freedom. He helped to institute um, significant religious reforms in the colony. Davies was also a prolific writer, authoring many hymns, and, a, and he also published a book of poetry. He also served as the fourth president of Princeton University. He built the famous Nassau Hall, which still stands today and is the oldest remaining building on that college campus. You can look it up online. Don't do it now. Listen to me. David Brainerd, I know David Brainerd, uh, me and him went to Davis High School, uh, 1718 to 1747, that's a joke, I just know who he is. He was an American Presbyterian minister and missionary to Native Americans, again, uh, among the Delaware Indians of New Jersey. Uh, in April 1747, seriously weakened by tuberculosis, he left New Jersey for the home of his very, very good friend, Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, and that's where he passed away. I'm not talking about his ministry much, but it was insane. And the fact that he was really good friends with Jonathan Edwards, I was like, can you introduce me to him someday? William Carey, you know who William Carey is? He's pretty notable. 1761 to 1834, an English missionary in particular Baptist to India. He founded both the Serapamore College and the Serampore, it's hard to pronounce, Serapore University in West Bengal. Um, it is the first degree awarding university in India. This guy essentially planted the first Christian university ever to exist in India. Pretty amazing. Robert Morrison, 1782 to 1834. He's called an Anglo-Scottish. I don't know what that means. Um, whatever. Anglo-Scottish Presbyterian missionary. The first Protestant missionary to China and the first to translate the Bible into Chinese. Robert Moffat, 1795-1883, a Scottish Congregationalist missionary, the first missionary to reach the interior of Africa with the gospel. He translated the entire Bible and Pilgrim's Progress into Setswana, the language of that land. Amazing. David Livingstone, 1813 to 1873, a Scottish physician, Congregationalist, and pioneer, Christian missionary with the London Missionary Society. He was also an explorer in Africa and one of the most popular British heroes of the late 19th century Victorian era. He is known as Africa's greatest missionary. Samuel Zwemer, 1867 to 1952, born in Vriesland, Michigan, affectionately known as the Apostle to Islam. His legacy includes efforts in Bahrain, uh, Arabia, Egypt, and Asia Minor. His writing was used by the Lord to encourage and mobilize an entire generation of missionaries that labor in Islamic countries. I, I don't know if you're noticing this, but I'm trying to be strategic in the ones that I identified, and I'm showing the different regions of the world they went into, that they weren't all just concentrated in one part of Africa or whatever. We have someone who went to China, India, America, we've got it all. And you know who this guy is, D. James Kennedy. Remember him? Coral Ridge Hour, 1930 to 2007, born in Augusta, Georgia, served as a Presbyterian minister. He was a Calvinist at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida for 47 years. He founded Evangelism Explosion, which many believe is the most widely used evangelistic training curriculum in church history. Do I like EE? Not really. Uh, but he founded it, and a great many people have utilized it, and a great many people have been brought to the Lord because of this. What do all these amazing missionaries have in common? They were all Protestant. They were all Reformed, and they were five-point Calvinist. Mostly, they were used by God to take the mighty gospel to the ends of the earth. These men, these faithful men, saw real spirit-led revivals, especially in America, among our Native Americans and among the colonists. Another interesting fact, Whitfield preached in his lifetime as a minister, he preached to roughly 10 million people. 10 million people. That's like Billy Graham numbers. 80% of the U.S. population during this time heard in person at least one 
of his sermons. That's how pervasive, that's the reach of this amazing missionary, George Whitfield. Now, this is not to say that the Protestant Reformation did not produce missionaries from other soteriological camps. John Wesley, 1703 to 1791, was by no means a five-point Calvinist, and he was pretty reformed, but he wasn't really a Calvinist. But he was a wonderful evangelist nonetheless, a very powerful preacher. A great many people were saved under his ministry by the Holy Spirit. The same can be said of D.L. Moody, 1837 to 1899, even Billy Sunday, 1862 to 1935. He was a pro baseball player, by the way. He became an evangelist, and of course I have to include Billy Graham, 1918 to 2018. We have a man in this room who was saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Isn't that awesome? It is. Now, this is really just a handful of the ecclesiological contributions to come through the Protestant Reformation. I need to move to our third and final point as I keep moving and moving and moving. This is a very fascinating area too. Number three, societal contributions. This is the one area of contribution that is most overlooked, that people are most ignorant of, even Christians. The Protestant Reformation has had a powerful, powerful impact on society. It has. I'm, I'm even talking about secular society. Uh, let me give you some examples. Johannes Gutenberg, that name ring a bell? German inventor, born in 1468. Uh, now, he does predate Luther by probably about 100 years, if not a little bit less. This man, German inventor, literally lived in the hub of the Protestant Reformation. He invented the very first printing press. Not the very first printing press, but the very first printing press that could mass produce movable type print, metal print. He was the first one to create that. And can you guess which book he printed first on his brand new invention in 1455? The Bible became known as the Gutenberg Bible. In the same year, he produced 180 copies of this Gutenberg Bible, which seems a bit minuscule, but at this time there were only about 30,000 books in all of Europe. So 180 book contribution is pretty significant at this time. And another thing that's really cool about the Gutenberg Bible and his spreading of these, and he did print more and spread them out, but during that year he only did 180. But the cool thing about all the Bibles that he printed was that he did it for free. No profit whatsoever. He printed them at his own expense and gave them away. And he did have some support by generous donors. It's important to note that. Uh, he, made no he made no money off the Bibles, printed and dis distributed them for free. Now, after Gutenberg's death, either students of Martin Luther or some rogue printer, Jimmy, got loose somehow, we don't know, used a Gutenberg press to mass produce Luther's 95 thesis and spread it throughout Germany almost overnight. I don't know how, what they did if they peeled it off the wall and then took it back to their place and then printed it and, then, and put it back up on the door at the church, at the castle church. I don't know how they did it. But somebody, either his students or somebody else, took it and just started whipping these things out. Somebody once said, and I don't know who it was, and I don't know how accurate the statement is, but somebody once said that the 95 Thesis, because of this person or because of these students, it quickly became the most circulated document in history, in the history of the world at that time. They were whipping them out like the New York Times with their conveyor papers. You know, I mean, they were just cranking them out and putting them out there. That's because everyone had such a high opinion of the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> no, not really. In any case, this created a firestorm of controversy, thus putting Luther on the map. His 95 thesis was the Twitter of the day. It really was. And, uh, I don't think Musk could have bought this from him. Gutenberg may have invented the modern printing press, and I don't know if he was really a reformer. He may have been, he may not have been. But it was the Protestant reformers that popularized the Gutenberg press. They got their hands on it first because they could see the value of it. They used it to print and spread massive, massive amounts of Protestant information everywhere. They were putting their stuff out there big time. Even secular folks began to use the Gutenberg Press. Uh, the largely unrestricted, unrestricted spread of information sharply increased literacy throughout Europe, 
breaking the virtual monopoly the educated elite and religious clergy had held over learning for centuries upon centuries. European societies were literally transformed almost overnight because of this Gutenberg press and because of the popularizing of the reformers. About 350 years later, someone whom you will know, Mark Twain, you know Mark Twain, right? Um, he wrote this. All the world acknowledges that the invention of Gutenberg is the greatest event that secular history has recorded. Wow. Twain wrote that. One of the, our most beloved authors. What am I saying here? Okay, listen. The Gutenberg press may, you know, the creation of it may predate Luther but it was still a product of the Protestant Reformation. It was still a contribution that came through the Protestant Reformation that literally transformed societies, that contributed to societies, transformed Europe, and made massive transformation across the globe. Another societal contribution of the Protestant Reformation is education. Before the Protestant Reformation, education was the privilege of only the wealthy aristocrats and priests, but the reformers argued that it should be made available to all. Their schools were the first to educate girls and saw the importance of developing the potential of every child for the glory of God. According to Joel Beakey, whom I really like and my wife likes even more because he is an amazing historian, he said this, Calvin opened the way for the people to raise themselves by education and by the diligent use of their knowledge and abilities. Uh, finding their full potential through education and applying it to their work enabled the rise of what would be called the Protestant work ethic, which would positively shape Western civilization for a great many centuries, or a few centuries at least. Harvard University was originally founded in 1636 and named after John Harvard, an English Puritan clergyman. It began as a seminary to train Puritan ministers. Its original mission statement says this, to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministries fail uh, or shall lie in the dust. So the main concern and statement of it was, we do not want to have an ignorant church. We are putting together a seminary to train ministers so we don't have ignorant pastors, ministers, therefore ignorant uh, congregations. Increase Mather, you might know that name, served as president of Harvard from 1681 to 1708. He was a devout Puritan and the father of someone we all know, I think most of us have heard of him, Cotton Mather, who became a Congregationalist minister, prolific author, and the most celebrated Puritan in New England. Yale University was originally founded in 1638 by the Puritan John Davenport and the New Haven Colony. Uh, King Charles II intervened and progress was halted to this new project until another Puritan minister named James Pierpont with 10 of his peers used political means to restart the project some years later. They were able to get past the Act for Liberty to erect a collegiate school into law. The school's mission was to instruct youth in the arts and sciences and fit them, quote, for public employment both in church and civil state. It was renamed Yale in 1718 in honor of Elihu Yale, a Welsh merchant who donated money. Listen to this. Yale changed its name to Yale in honor of this guy because of what he donated. What did he donate? He donated the proceeds from the sale of nine bales of hay. <laughs> he donated 417 books, probably for their library. And the funniest thing of all, he donated a portrait of King George I. I tell you what, we're going to name our college after you. I think I could probably cover those expenses and have Baker College. I mean, this was like almost nothing back then. It was probably a fortune back then, actually. Now, as I said earlier, Princeton University was originally founded by the reformer William Tennant in 1727. It became a Calvinistic seminary and training center for Presbyterian ministers. Today, it is recognized as one of the top schools in the world, um, and, and that's, that's a fact. Now, these Ivy League, because that's an Ivy League school as well as Harvard and Yale, these Ivy League universities were originally founded by Presbyterians and by Puritans for the education and preparation of Reformed ministers and lay people alike. 
That's why they originally existed. And by the way, Harvard, uh, Yale, and Princeton all have theological programs, uh, but they're really not any good now. Uh, Princeton boasts of its flagship theological seminary, PTS, and yet in 2017, it refused to give the prestigious Kuiper Prize after, it's named after Abraham uh, Kuiper, who was a president there years and years before that. They refused to give this award to a guy named Tim Keller. He was a Presbyterian minister in New York. Why? Because of his association with the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. Why? Because the PCA refuses to appoint women and LGBTQ+, and all the rest of the letters of the alphabet, refuse to appoint people like that to pastorates, and, Ke and Keller belonged to a church that had that view, and Princeton said, uh, we're not going to give you the award, which kind of shows where they're at now. They're pretty goofed up. Now, it's true that these schools may no longer benefit society in true religion, but they do benefit society in many other ways, right? They do. Yale's law school is number one in the U.S. Maybe did you think that Harvard was? It's not. Yale has been for a great many years, probably a couple decades now. Yale is just unbelievable. Number one in the U.S., it's law school. Harvard is number three. And, and, but Harvard Medical School is number one in the U.S. Yale's School of Medicine is number 13, so Harvard's whooping them on that. Princeton has an amazing engineering program. That's what Princeton's actually known for, but it's only rated number 13 in the U.S. Can you guess which is number one? M, I, yes, T. For science, Harvard is number five, Princeton is number six, Yale is number 10. What's the point? These extraordinary schools produce top flight lawyers, doctors, engineers, scientists, the list goes on and on, who contribute to society. And it's because of the Protestant Reformation. Amen? Hospitals are a societal contribution of the Protestant Reformation. As I said earlier, the first hospital in India was founded by a Reformed Protestant missionary by the name of William Carey. The first hospital in America was founded in 1751 in Pennsylvania by a Quaker named Thomas Bond. Quakerism came out of Reformed or out of Protestant, that of the Protestant Reformation. This new hospital was voluntary, relying entirely upon donations. Roman Catholics didn't establish a hospital in the U.S. until 1847, almost 100 years later. It's called Mercy. It's in Pittsburgh. And it even then relied on patient fees. I'm drawing distinctions for you, and I mean to do it not to be cruel, but to show you these positive contributions. Modern nursing is a societal contribution of the Protestant Reformation. Its founder, Florus, Florence what? Nightingale, 1820 to 1910, was a member of the Church of England. At age 16, she claims to have received a call from God into nursing service. She may have drifted off into heterodoxy in her later years. Uh, we don't know for sure, but let me tell you something right now. She was used mightily during that time to establish nursing. And you can date nursing all the way back to the care of widows and orphans in the first century in the book of Acts. Orphanages are a societal contribution of the Protestant Reformation. George Whitfield established an orphanage in Bethesda, Georgia in 1740. By the early 19th century, about two dozen more had been built in big cities. And from the 1830s, um, orphanages just opened rapidly in most cities around the country. But it really started with Whitfield's um, invention then of the orphanage here in America. Uh, the Protestant Orphan Society was founded in 1828. The Belvedere Home in... Terrell's Pass, Ireland, was founded by the Church of Ireland, that's Anglican, in 1843. The British Columbia Protestant Orphans Home was founded in 1873. Salvatore Ferretti, 1817 to 1874, founded Protestant orphanages throughout London and Florence, Italy. The societal contributions, what I'm telling you is the societal contributions of the Protestant Reformation were so pervasive at this time, and have remained so, it prompted a decisive, in, in this time in particular, it prompted a decisive response from Roman Catholics. They got nervous because of the reach of Protestantism. According to Matthew Crenson, he is the, or was the political science professor at Johns Hopkins, he said this, Roman Catholics began to view American society as dominated by Protestants. It responded by founding parochial schools and parochial children's homes. Roman Catholics got nervous at this time. The Protestants are Protestantizing America. Amen. Amen. Now wrapping up. 
as we have learned, the Protestant Reformation has made incredible world-transforming contributions, right? It has. There's no doubt about it. I don't care if people deny it. It doesn't really matter. And I would say, especially in the areas that we've identified today, no doubt in theology, certainly in ecclesiology, and then in society. These are facts. The funny thing is, is that when you go and try to research these facts by going to like Harvard's page or Princeton, you don't see it there. They've scrubbed it out. They've gotten rid of it because they don't want to have that as its roots. But you can wipe, you know, the annals of history from your website, but you can't wipe it from history. Sorry. These contributions are just incredible, unbelievable, right? That's what we've talked about. Now, this is the question I want to end and answer with. Is this the main point? Is the point of Phil's lecture this morning just to juxtapose or to compare and maybe not so nicely Protestantism with Roman Catholicism? No, it didn't have anything to do with it. Is it just to, to boast about what Protestants have done since the Reformation? No, it didn't have anything to do with it, even though that's what it sounded like. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm proud in a good way of our movement. I am. Thank God for the Protestant Reformation. One of the biggest contributions there is, is you. You do not exist the way that you are without it. You are either a Roman Catholic or some other type of pagan. Think about it. Think about it. But the contributions in and of themselves are not the point. They are not the point. I have presented these facts to prove something else, something of much higher importance. During the Renaissance, same time, there was a resurgence of art and beauty, undoubtedly. Architecture was just extraordinary during this time. But what was happening at the religious level was that the Roman Catholic Church was attempting to destroy the Church of Christ. Still is. Doesn't think it is, but it is. And guess what? Christ would not allow this. He flexed his all-powerful, omnipotent arm and intervened with great power at this time. He raised up the reformers and countered this demonic Romish attack against his bride with the Protestant Reformation. Why? Because Christ was fulfilling his sovereign, immutable promise. Put it up on the screen. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall never prevail against her, Matthew 16, 18. That is the point. That is the main point of this message. That is more importantly, because my message is just one message. It is the main point of the Protestant Reformation. It is the definitive statement of, I will build my church in nothing, not even the gates of hell shall prevail against her. That's what it is. That's what it is. The Protestant Reformation proves this promise. And my encouragement to us is that we must never forget it. And I, I would say this just as a last encouragement. There was another thing to come out of the Protestant Reformation, another Latin saying that I really love. It is pronounced semper reformanda. It means always reforming to the word of God, always. That statement was a statement that somebody that knew Latin came up with during the Reformation. I don't even know where it came from. I just know it came out of it that understood the answer to a question that is even being asked today is the Protestant Reformation over. Semper reformanda. What does that mean? No, it is not over. It is not over. Brothers and sisters, we have a rich heritage and we have a charge from the word of God. Semper reformanda. We are always reforming in accordance with the word of God. Always. That's what we are to do. And we are to take that mighty gospel, just like this long history of faithful Protestant reform missionaries, to our own mission field right here, to our own Jerusalem right here. 